The year is 2012. Marvel Studios is well on its way to taking over cinema viewers' imagination with the release of The Avengers. Christian Bale retired The Cow and The Dark Knight Rises. Channing Tatum drove women crazy, my wife included, in Magic Mike. Jennifer Lawrence became the highest-growing action heroine of all time, starring in The Hunger Games. She then starred opposite Bradley Cooper in The Unlikely Love Story, complicated by loss and mental illness in Silver Linings Playbook. The consequences of possible untreated mental illness can be very serious. Today we look at the story of Johnny Lewis and his spiral downwards. I'm Justin Harvey, and you're listening to Death and Hollywood. Johnny's mother began taking her son on auditions when he was only six years old. He was cast in his first role at seven, a bit part in an escalator safety video featuring a rapping cartoon raccoon. He worked in commercials, including a Pizza Hut spot, and his bright smile and solid acting chops scored him appearances on Seventh Heaven, Malcolm in the Middle, and Drake and Josh. At 18, with money in his pocket, Lewis left his parents' home in the valley and moved to Hollywood. It's there he lived with other actors in what was widely known in the entertainment industry as the Wilton Hilton. It was the frat row for young Hollywood. In the mid-2000s, Lewis began dating a fledgling pop singer named Katy Perry. This would be a few years before she'd kiss a girl and take the world by storm. Scrawny, but tough. His body chiseled, but not bulking. Blonde hair on piercing blue eyes with a Joker-like smile. The looks of the next leading man. It all perfectly counterbalanced Perry's teeny bopper image. The romance would be short-lived but potent, at least for Perry. Two songs off her Teenage Dream album, The One That Got Away and Circle the Drain, are rumored to be partly about Lewis. The actor's choice of roles was eclectic. After the O.C. and other TV shows, Lewis appeared in a one-off play in such indie fair as 2007's Palo Alto, California, in which he played an awkward teenager. He was loved by everybody. He merged with different groups really easily, and he fit in everywhere. Everywhere except the show that made him famous. In 2008, he'd land that role, playing an ex-military man who lost a testicle while serving in Iraq affectionately known as Half Sack, on the hit show Sons of Anarchy. After just two seasons as Half Sack, Lewis became restless and asked to be written out of the show. Johnny wasn't happy, said series creator Kurt Sutter in a 2009 interview about Lewis's departure. Creatively, he really wanted out of his contract. An interview with his father would reveal that Johnny thought the show was getting too violent and as an artist, that wasn't the message he wanted to send. After leaving Sons, Lewis would never return to television. Instead, he appeared in a couple low-budget features and some short films, though he was more interested in living off his son's money while he finished writing his first novel, about a young musical genius 
making his way in San Francisco. In early 2009, Johnny would move into the Red Sweet Writer's Villa. The house at 3605 Lowry Road was luxurious, yet homey. It had exposed wood beams and rustic antique furniture. Spanish-style tiled floors matched the walls, which were painted a warm yellow, red, and cream. The centerpiece of the house was a staircase inlaid with ceramic tile leading to one of the five guest rooms, some with majestic views of the San Gabriel Mountains. Catherine Davis, who was known by most of her tenants as just Miss Kathy, was a Texan who had moved to California in 1950. She attended UCLA and worked in various publishing jobs before marrying James H. Davis. By the 1980s, she was divorced, and her and her daughter, the writer Margaret Leslie Davis, was grown up. So Miss Kathy took on a real estate career, using her beautiful empty nest as a temporary base camp for her well-funded clients as they hunted for houses. Over time, her home evolved into one of those idyllic, distinctly L.A. arrangements, an extended bed and breakfast for up-and-coming performers, directors, and of course writers. It was Davis, a lively woman with short gray hair and sparkling wit, who clinched the deal. Val Kilmer, Parker Posey, Paula Poundstone, and Chris Parnell all lived at the villa when they were on the rise, enjoying the company of this good-natured landlady. If a pitch or audition went poorly, Miss Kathy would be there with open arms and homemade tamales. Her house was also an emotional refuge for many celebrities. The word of mouth, Davis's reputation in the upscale Hollywood community grew. When someone moved out, there was always another star on the rise waiting to take their place at the villa. The rent was steep, between $1,600 and $3,000 a month for a one-bedroom with a private sitting area and private bath. There were common areas, including a living room, a large flagstone patio, and manicured grounds, as well as a shared kitchen. It was always filled with successful people who were very ambitious. So around this time, Lewis learned that his new girlfriend, actress Diane Marshall Green, was pregnant. Even though not romantically involved, the couple settled into a Hollywood apartment to raise their child together. On April 6th, 2010, Marshall Green gave birth to a girl, Cola May. The arrangement, however, didn't work, and Lewis moved out. He soon found himself embroiled in what would be a long and painful custody battle, one that he would eventually lose. Then, in late October 2011, Lewis lost control of his Triumph motorcycle near 29 Palms. At the hospital, the staff checked him for signs of a concussion, but he was allowed to leave after the test came back negative. His father, however, noticed that his son's behavior was becoming erratic and bizarre. Had the accident shaken something loose in his brain? The elder Lewis scheduled two more MRIs, which Johnny refused. His friends also reported that his behavior began changing after the accident. We're going to fast forward a bit to the morning of January 3rd, 2012. Lewis is lounging in the Northridge condo he had bought for his parents, watching his mother cook breakfast, wearing PJ bottoms and a t-shirt. He told his mom he was going to go for a stroll in the neighborhood. As he walked past a neighboring unit, 
He thought he heard cries of distress coming from within and decided to break in, but the place was empty. Not long after that, two men arrived and asked him to leave the property. For some reason, Lewis went after them with an empty Perrier bottle, hitting them both in the head. A struggle started and a fight spilled out onto the patio. Johnny bit one of the men on the arm and then attempted to get away from the scene. The two men overpowered him and detained him until police could arrive on scene. Lewis would claim he was acting in self-defense. Police were not sold and charged him with trespassing, burglary, and assault with a deadly weapon. He was sent to the Twin Towers Jail. Three days later, his behavior landed him in the psychiatric ward as a 5150. This is the code for involuntary confinement. He remained there for 72 hours. After a total of eight days behind bars, his father bailed him out and Lewis was returned to his parents' house in Northridge. He was a physical and mental wreck. His face was puffy and he sported two black eyes. He was completely withdrawn, not letting anyone near him for several days. The next few weeks were a flurry of self-destructive activity, including slashing his wrists in a suicide attempt. A network of family and friends kept a close eye on him. By the end of January, Lewis seemed more stable, and his father decided to let him live on his own in Santa Monica. Trouble quickly found Johnny, though. On February 10th, he was arrested for sucker-punching a man outside a yogurt shop. He was released on a $20,000 bail, and days later, he would walk fully clothed into the ocean at Santa Monica and have to be hospitalized for hypothermia. On February 18th, he was arrested again, this time for trying to break into a woman's apartment in Santa Monica, claiming he thought it was a friend's house. Again, he was released on bail. At his next court appearance, Lewis's lawyer was working to allow Lewis to swap jail for time in a treatment center, claiming Johnny was addicted to marijuana. On May 23, 2012, after two months in lockup, Lewis was transported to Ridgeview Ranch in the foothills of Altadena, with activities lists that includes yoga, meditation, and art therapy. Ridgeview calls itself a dual diagnosis facility, treating residents for both psychosis and substance abuse. His family believed him staying there was better than being in jail. At Ridgeview, Lewis's claims of being addicted to marijuana didn't fly with the trained counselors and fellow addicts, so Lewis switched and pretended to be addicted to alcohol. He would say, that demon rum man, it's possessed me. At that point, he said they started to believe him, despite the far-fetched diagnosis and treatment for a disease he didn't believe he had, Lewis's mental state began to improve after a few months. In one of his journal entries from July of 2012, Lewis wrote, Felt more whole today, more complete, like parts of myself had been stolen in my sleep and scattered all over the world, and now they've begun to return. I'm more determined than ever now. I'll face what I am. I'll face what I was. What he was facing was serious jail time for the Northridge bottle assault. His lawyer sought a plea deal. Lewis would spend an entire year at Ridgeview in lieu of jail. But Lewis confident his case would be thrown out 
It was self-defense after all, he claimed. He fired his lawyer and defiantly acted as his own attorney. Lewis thought he would spend a few days in jail, then resume his normal life. No more curfews and mandatory group sessions at Ridgeview. He would be free. Instead, he was sentenced to a year in jail and hauled back to Twin Towers. But because of the county's overcrowded jails, Lewis's sentence was drastically reduced. He spent a total of six weeks in jail before being released on September 22nd. The night he got out, he checked into the Las Feliz Hotel at Outwater Village. The following Sunday, his father helped him shop for new clothes before driving him into the valley to pick up his Triumph motorcycle. Lewis asked his father to contact the writer's villa to see if there was space available. Since his son wasn't agreeable to returning to Ridgeview, his father believed the quiet and peaceful surroundings of the villa could be the next best thing. I mean, this is a place he is familiar with. It's quiet and filled with good people. Kathy Davis agreed and made sure his old room would be ready and waiting for him. On Monday, Lewis moved into his room on the second floor of the villa. On Wednesday, September 26, 2012, he would knock on his neighbor's door. Hi, I'm John, your new neighbor. If Dan Blackburn wasn't completely stunned to see this unkempt young man with intense blue eyes introducing himself at his doorstep, it was only because the former newsman had just spent a good 15 minutes tracking his movements from his living room window. Wearing nothing but blue jeans and red shoes, Blackburn's visitor had been pacing up and down the pavement of the corner at Los Feliz Hills. He was lean and muscular, with shaggy blonde hair. His bare torso was slick with sweat. Nice to meet you, John, Blackburn replied, trying to figure out the man's motives. The two men stood across from each other in Blackburn's doorway, before John, who Blackburn would later learn was the actor Johnny Lewis, suddenly walked away and Blackburn returned to his morning routines. About 30 minutes after meeting Lewis at his door, Blackburn heard his wife Gloria nervously yelling for him. He rushed outside to find Lewis on top of a house painter that was painting the first floor of the Blackburn house. He was pummeling him with his fists. The worker's face was covered in blood. Specks of it were landing on the actor's body. Blackburn rushed over there and pulled Lewis off the painter. Grabbing him by the shoulder, he told him to stop. In one movement, Lewis jumped to his feet and struck Blackburn right to the face, knocking the 70-year-old man on the ground. Lewis's expression was flat, and he seemed to have Superman strength. He didn't even flinch when Blackburn stood up and threw a punch to his temple. Blackburn then swung a chair from the deck onto Lewis, which stunned him enough that Blackburn, his wife, and the painter were able to escape into the house. As they tried to shut the front door, Lewis stuck his arm through the opening, as if in a scene from your favorite slasher film. The three put all their weight into the door, slamming it repeatedly against Johnny's arm until he finally slithered away. The group barricaded themselves inside and called the police. From a window... Blackburn saw Lewis leap over the three-foot-high fence around the deck and then jump to the wooden fence surrounding the writer's villa next door. 
His feet never seemed to touch the ground. He scaled the fence and disappeared into the villa. He was like a low-key Spider-Man, said Blackburn. As police pulled up to the rider's villa, they spotted Johnny Lewis in the middle of the driveway, lying face up and appearing lifeless. Looking at the villa, they saw the patio and the roof, which rose about 15 feet above the ground. They noticed that Lewis's left eye socket was caved in. His skull was smashed just to the left, and it appeared as though he had plunged from either the second floor or the roof, and it died instantly. Inside, the scene was even more gruesome. Walking upstairs from the first floor, which was pristine, investigators stepped over broken glass before entering a large bedroom in the southwest corner. They would find out this is Lewis's room. There, they found a rusty hammer with traces of blood on it. Following the path of destruction to the attached bathroom, they discover the body of a dead cat in the shower, covered in blood, and its skull bashed in. Across the hall, from Lewis's room, they find the master bedroom, Kathy Davis's room. They see blood on her bed frame, wall, table, and a sitting chair. On the floor next to the bed, they find her body. The blunt force trauma to her head fractured her entire skull and obliterated the left side of her face, leaving her brain exposed. That's what the coroner's report said. Brain and tissue matter were seen on the floor around her. Her face is covered in blood, her nose is split down the middle, and her upper jaw is split open. There are also four small puncture wounds on her left cheek, presumably from a mechanical pencil found beside the body. The official report, released two months later, revealed that Davis had been killed by blunt force trauma to the head. Investigators believe that just minutes after he had introduced himself to Blackburn, Johnny went back to the villa and confronted Davis in her room. No one knows what fueled his rage, but one rumor floated among Davis's friends was that he had gone to the fuse box and turned the electricity off the night before. Davis had confronted him and given him a stern warning not to do that. Whatever the reason, if there is one, the results were unimaginable. Lewis is believed to have punched Davis several times and then tried to strangle her with his bare hands. It was unclear from the injuries whether he had used the hammer found in his room on Davis, but the force of his beatings were so severe that detectives believe Lewis may have stomped on Davis's skull. He then killed her cat and left it in the shower. Moments later, the detectives believe Lewis went outside where he was observed attacking the house painter by the Blackburns. After that confrontation, he then ascended either to the upper patio or the roof. It is not possible to tell whether he jumped or slipped. His death was officially ruled an accident, not a suicide. As news broke, a theory quickly emerged on the internet. Lewis had been on bath salts. The use of bath salts had made headlines that spring. The snortable or injectable powder was reportedly the catalyst for a handful of grisly attacks around the country, including one by the notorious 31-year-old Florida cannibal who was shot by police while biting 
and eating the face of another man in the middle of a busy street. The New York Daily News also threw out the possibility of another designer drug called Smiles, a psychedelic ingested as a pill or a powder or mixed in with chocolate that had been linked to a series of suicides and overdoses. Johnny's friends and family disputed these rumors. While some Hollywood stars are known for taking drugs in excess, Johnny was more known for being intoxicating versus being intoxicated. The family and the public would get answers and possibly even more questions with Lewis's toxicology report. The report, which came back two months after the incident, indicated that there were no drugs or alcohol in his system, no basalts, no meth, or cocaine, or his prescribed antipsychotic medication. The toxicology report was a disappointment to many who thought this had to be the reason for Johnny's actions. If it wasn't drugs, what drove Johnny Lewis to murder? Those who were once close to Lewis expressed their grief. Us Weekly reported that Kitty Perry was devastated and that her best friend, actress Shannon Woodward, she tweeted, Johnny Lewis, I love you deeply and madly and always. My heart is broken in a million little pieces. She then added, Johnny Lewis was one of my best friends and he was very, very ill. His actions were a despicable result of that but it's not who he was. Among the 140 character condolences, one connection flatly admitted he wasn't surprised by Lewis's homicidal frenzy. His former boss, Kurt Sutter, his tweet read, I wish I could say that I was shocked by the events of last night, but I was not. But like any actor who manages to get some screen time, Johnny Lewis will remain forever. Take his performance in Criminal Minds. You can find it on YouTube. In a ratty gray t-shirt, his hair messed up, and sporting a wispy beard creeping across that square-cut jawline. The 25-year-old is playing a serial killer who's just been caught. FBI Special Agent Rossi wants some answers. Why? he asks Lewis's character. Why do you feel compelled to kill? Why? I have no idea why, says Lewis with his trademark smile. I see a guy walking down the street with a stupid look on his face and I just want to bash him over the head with a bottle. To me, that's normal. It's weird to me that no one else feels that way. It's all I think about and I can't stop. I won't pretend to know why Johnny Lewis committed this unthinkable act but maybe life truly imitates art. If you like this story, please hit subscribe and leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. If you really like this story and want to help us grow, please share it with just one friend. You can join the conversation by following us on social media, and if you'd like to support the show, visit anchor.fm to become a subscriber, and you'll be listed in the credits of the next show.